You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. Today, we're continuing our study in Hebrews. Um, so turn, if you want, cheat over to Hebrews 2. And I want to start off um, with a fishing story. Um, I know this is, I know there's not a lot of fishermen in this room, um, so I'll do my best to explain it as a, a concept uh, to you um, as, as best I can. Um, but when I was growing up, uh, for those of you that know, I grew up on the Gulf of Mexico, so it was common uh, for me to go out with my friend Brian or my neighbor Ernie on the boats, and we'd go fishing. Um, and we just wouldn't fish the Gulf, even though that's pretty cool. But many times we'd turn our boat inland, um, we'd go up the canals, we'd go up the rivers. Um, one, because there's a chance we can see manatees, and manatees are awesome. Uh, but two, it's a good place to catch fish. And of course, we'd mosey on and motor out to our favorite fishing hole that has, you know, found us some great success before. And we'd hit the motor to turn it off, and we'd begin to fish. And after, of course, about 20 minutes, you look up from your line and you realize that your boat was not where you turned the motor off 20 minutes ago. You had drifted down the river, down the canal. Now, believe it or not, by the age of eight, I was already a professional drifter. It does not take much talent, which is really encouraging. So what would it, of course, would do, we'd turn up the motor, and maybe this time we'd go a little bit past our favorite fishing hole so we could fall, out, follow it, fall into it a little bit easier. But you all know this if you're fishermen. You all know this if you've been on any moving body of water. The current makes the boat drift. And we're going to see in the text today, as Paul gives his first warning to the church, to the Hebrews, to not drift. That's the language he uses, don't drift. And, and then we're going to see how Jesus not only did not drift, but he made a beeline towards his beloved. And in the process, hmm, in the process, he became human so he could love most those he cared for. Jesus was the perfect human. Think about that. Jesus was the perfect human. Even though he was God, he acted in such a way that he did not drift from either his humanity or his divinity. You could say that he was more human than you and I have ever been. For when we drift, when we sin, we are less of the image bearers that God intended us to be. So let's read today's text and break down the word that the Lord has to say to us today. Please stand for the reading of the word of God. We're going to read all of chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect 
such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it was not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stand forever. You may be seated. Bow your heads with me. Father God, as we look at the text today, there, there is a lot here and it may seem daunting, but I pray that my words are clear, that the message of this section is abundantly put forth, and that hearts would be ready and open to receive it. May we see you for who you are, and in light of that, see ourselves for the way we are intended to be. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Warning. Don't drift. You see, most of the time, and you know this, drifting doesn't take place intentionally. I think that's most clear in our relationships, right? Many of us probably had dear friends in high school. And at some point after graduation, we drifted apart. Time was no longer invested. Goals were no longer shared. Um, shared interests began, began to diverge, and we began to drift. And it's the same way with many sins, right? We tend to drift into sin. I've never once met a high school student that when he gave me his goals for life said, one day I want to be an AA member. One day I want to be a serial adulterer. 
one day I want to be a lying politician. None of them say that. But it's those small decisions over the course of one's life that ends up leading us into sin. We drift. We drift. And the text today warns us not to do this. The Hebrews were beginning to drift back into an Old Testament sacrificial system that did not save them, but was a shadow of the reality that is offered in Jesus. And let's be real. It's the same way with our faith. I've seen it over time with people who slowly drift out of church. They sit in the same place every Sunday, like good church members, right? We got our own seats. We'll fight over it. And then slowly we begin to slip out closer to the door, and eventually we miss one Sunday, and that turns to two, and that turns to a month. And eventually when we come back, everyone treats us like a visitor because that's what we've become. We drift. C.S. Lewis illustrates this in his book, The Screwtape Letters, in which one demon gives an advice to another. This is what it says. He says, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You see, our faith must be active. The gospel that we cling to, we must bury deep within our hearts and continue to cultivate it like it is a dear garden. It is true, this gospel that we hold to. The angels attested to it. The prophets attested to it. And finally, Christ Jesus himself attested to it. And when he did so, he displayed many signs and wonders. Why? So that when he rose up to heaven, all his disciples and eyewitnesses can say, did you see what he did? And that speaks to the truth of what he said. And so we must pay attention to this unless we drift. Look again at Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Church, if drifting is passive, our faith must be active. Church, if drifting is passive, our faith must be active. And here's the question that I'd, I'd have you dwell on sometime this afternoon. What steps do you need to take to keep yourself from drifting away? And as the text warns, missing the whole message of salvation. What steps do you need to take? Think about it. All the great things in life, all the great things in life are active things that take place within reality. Most of us just don't end up with obedient children, right? You have to work for it. You don't end up with a good marriage passively. You have to actively work on it. 
We don't just end up, teenagers, we don't just end up with good friendships, do we? Those have to be invested in and sacrificed for. We don't just end up with a posh job. There must be sacrifices that are made. Reconciliation does not happen by ignoring it or ignoring sins. Reconciliation happens when we confront it. Battles are not won. Battles are not won by laying down arms, but are carefully calculated, closely strategized, and expertly carried out. How much more so our faith? Well, AJ, I just don't find the Bible that important. Are you in it? Take steps to be in it. Well, AJ, I just don't find Jesus that interesting. Do you know him? Invest in him. AJ, God's people, the church, really aren't very important to me. Look around the room. I would encourage you to pray for your brothers and sisters in this room on a regular basis. Do you think about the faces that sit around you on a Sunday over the course of the week? Or are they an afterthought that takes place? We cannot have community if that's how we approach it. We must actively seek the good of our church family. If your faith is not active, you will drift. And I was going to say, you know, Christ is the anchor. But I think that puts Christ too short in the analogy. Christ is the propeller. And he drives our faith upriver towards the destination that he would have us go. Christ is the power in the boat. Is your boat drifting? Or is your boat engaged for the life ahead? Because you see, it is when our boat is engaged that we become more truly human. Hebrews 2, 5, and 8 says this, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection under him, he left nothing outside his control. Out present, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. And this is what this section is talking about when it talks about true humanity. Listen here. It was not the angels that God gave the world to come. It was not the angels that God has given heaven and that God gave the world to in the beginning. If you remember Genesis 2, which as we read Psalm 8 this morning, it alludes to over and over again the creation event, right? What we see is that we were given a world to be in dominion over. All the creatures that God had created, you and I are called to have dominion over. Now what is that? Dominion gets a bad rap nowadays. But there is a great difference between dominion and tyranny. You know this, you turn on the news, unfortunately, like me. 
Look, there are many people in the world today that view humanity much closer to a virus than we do a steward. That you and I, they believe, cause much more problems than we offer solutions. And if, to be frank, if you look at the devastation we have placed on much of this world, it may seem that they be right. But humanity has the unique ability among created creatures to bring harmony. While every other creature on the top of the food chain would blindly hunt their prey to extinction, humanity has the ability to create a garden out of any wilderness. Humanity has the ability to actually make it easier for animals to thrive. We just have to actively fight for it. We must take dominion and reject tyranny of the world, for we have been given a crown of glory. The Lord has put everything in subjection under his feet, but again, many times, we're passive in this endeavor. We're so passive. And the Lord calls us to be active, but to be active for the glory of King Jesus and not our own glory. And it's, understand this, it's not just dominion over nature that he speaks of, but it's dominion over the way that we interact with our neighbors in this village. Do we take responsibility for our community? Do we seek the welfare for our community? Do we do good for our community? Well, how would good be defined? The Bible gives us that in Micah 6, 8. He has told you, oh man, what is good? And what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. If we were to do these things in our village, we would begin to exercise dominion, and it would be for the good of our neighbor. But many times, we become many tyrants, especially as people rub up against our own little kingdoms. And then we justify our tyranny by saying, well, our neighbors deserve that, and they might. But hear this verse in Romans. If you desire evil for your neighbor, this might be one of those verses you tattoo on your forearm, Romans 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in sight of all inside of the community. Why do this? Why? What is, what is the chief function that the Lord is giving us within these texts? It's that we're stewards of the king. We are entrusted not to just maintain his kingdom, but to extend his kingdom. There's many, many parables within the text of scripture that we see this. And in every area we fight, in every arena that we do battle, we are called to be good stewards. And I think this is most beautifully displayed in the steward of Gondor. For those of you that don't know the Lord of the Rings, I'll do my best to explain it to you. But if you've read the book or you've maybe seen the movie, I think it is such an apt illustration of what the Lord asks of us. And I think Tolkien really did a good job of explaining this. It's one of my favorite literary devices within the Lord of the Rings, and that is the concept of the steward of Gundor. 
If you haven't read the books or seen the scene in the movies, let me explain it to you. Long ago, in the land of Gondor, there was a great king. But at some point, the line of kings was broken. And so instead of replacing it with a new line of kings, what took place is that stewards took up the mantle and the responsibility of the king looking forward to the day that the line of kings would be reestablished. The steward functioned and acted in dominion on behest and behalf of the king's kingdom, but he never claimed the title for himself. And it is a very similar thing that is asked with us as we exercise stewardship on behalf of the king because we are not the king or queen. Likewise, we find this motif within scripture. The world belongs to King Jesus. However, we are to reign as his stewards. This is why we are called to be ambassadors in 2 Corinthians 5.20. It's what it means to be an image bearer throughout the text of scripture. We bear the image of the King of Kings. And we see that from the author of Hebrews as he quotes Psalm 8 in Hebrews 2.7. You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. The original text here is talking about mankind. Humans have a distinctive purpose to reflect the glory and rule of God in this world. And when we do this, understand this, when we do this, we become truly human. We become the image bearers that God has called us to be. But we didn't do this. And if you're like me, I spend the majority of my week building my own little kingdom with little thought to the kingdom of God. I actually act many times in rebellion to the greater king. I fail to be a good steward, and I rarely exercise dominion, but act like a mini tyrant. Just ask my kids. So what would the God of the universe do in response to this dilemma posed by mankind, who have abandoned their call to stewardship, but instead claim the title of king? Jesus would come towards us, and he would become fully human to represent us. Jesus became human. This is what verses 9 through 13 point out. Now this is profound, right? While controversy today exists in a post-enlightenment world of whether Jesus is God, the main question posed to the early church and to many of the cults that existed was whether Jesus was actually human. Gnostics argued this point for centuries, saying, no, Jesus could not be fully human and fully divine. He could only be divine. That was the argument of the early church, that he was not human. But this is exactly what Jesus did. Hebrews 2.9. But we see him who for a little while made, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Do you see the echo that is directly tied to Psalm 8 and the people of God? And what is the purpose that he became, he became man? 
so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Here again, we hear this motif of the great high priest that was given to us last week in Hebrews 1. He became human for you and me. He tasted death, so even though we might die, we actually live. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. You see, we have life because of the grace of Jesus, because of the active work of Jesus, because Jesus has taken dominion over death. Jesus willingly entered into suffering for that purpose. Look at Hebrews 2.10 again. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now this is not saying that, that Jesus lacked perfection prior to suffering. He was morally pure beforehand, but his ability to suffer in human form, by doing that, he is now a perfect representative for us. If Jesus was not really human, he couldn't really become a human representative. But by becoming human, by becoming the second Adam, he can fully represent us. He can fully save us. And I want, us, I want you to notice the word founder within the text too. Think of it like a pioneer when he talks about Jesus being the founder of our salvation. He, Jesus was carving a path forward so that we could follow him in relationship to God. That means that if you trust in Jesus, that what is true of him is true of you. Don't miss that. That means that if you trust in Jesus, what is true of him is true of you. In theological terms, what we call this is union with Christ. And it's one of those theological concepts that I, we could sit in forever. We have union with the Savior that is beyond anything we can imagine in this life. So much so that we experience with union with Christ in this world a shadow of that reality that will exist in all eternity. Here are a few ways we see this verse played out, okay? This union that exists. What is true of him is true of you. First, that Jesus' death is our death. Jesus' death is our death. We see this in verse 9. He died and suffered the wrath of God as our representative. And because of our union with him, we need not suffer the same punishment for our sin. He took our place. And we see this throughout the text of Scripture. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Second, Jesus' glory is our glory. Verse 10 of chapter 2 of Hebrews reminds us 
that he brings many sons and daughters to glory. The same glory of Jesus is offered freely to those who believe. We get glory not because of our own actions, but because of, as stewards of the king, we are bestowed the same honor and rights as the king. Third, Jesus' holiness is our holiness. Jesus' holiness is our holiness. Hebrews 2.11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that's Christ. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. What keeps us out of the presence of God is our lack of holiness. What keeps us from being the perfect image bearers that God has asked us to be is our lack of holiness. What keeps us from being the type of humans that God has created us to be is our lack of holiness, our sin. So Jesus took on human flesh, paid the penalty for sin, and now those who are in union with Christ are granted his holiness, his sanctification. So much so, this is crazy, that when we stand before God the Father, Jesus will not be ashamed to call us brothers and sisters because his righteousness is now our righteousness. That's the union with Christ. Dr. Michael Kruger says this, in Christ, God promises to make us into the kind of humanity he originally designed. This was always his plan. Jesus became a real human so that we too can become the image bearers God intended us to be. And we see what that begins to look like and how that was offered to us in the rest of the text in Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. That's a big word, propitiation. The way I think about it, it's a pro-pitcher, okay? So you're at the plate and the pro-pitcher is throwing you the ball and you knock the wrath of God back into the field. The pro-pitcher and you pitch, he turns back the wrath of God. He brings propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And this is this real humanity that we are called into in verses 18 through 14. Jesus is fully human. Fully human. He is everything we were intended to be. And while many cults throughout history deny this, we as Christians cannot. We get to cling to this theological truth, okay? That Jesus is fully human and he's fully divine. He's fully God. Notice verse 16. He does this not to help the angels, but to help the offspring of Abraham. That's you and me. 
and be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect. Every respect. I want to camp there for a second because we can miss this. This is profound. If you know history, if you've ever studied religious history, no other God in the history of the world becomes like his creation in every respect. None. But Jesus, in his love for his creation, becomes like us so that he may submit to suffering. This is why it's very, it, to me, it's, it's comforting. Jesus has experienced suffering. The Savior of the world, the God of the universe, has experienced suffering just as you and I have experienced suffering throughout this world. We know from this text of scripture that Joseph wasn't around towards Jesus' ministry. Most scholars assume that Joseph had died. You ever lost a parent? Jesus has been there. You ever been poor? The Son of God had nowhere to lie his head. Jesus has been there. You ever been called a liar and slandered and abandoned by your friends? Jesus has been there. And it makes it so that when trials and sufferings come in this life, we can never turn to Jesus and say, you have no idea what I'm going through. He has every idea what you're going through. Because he's been there through it. He has suffered with us. And not only in the trials that come, but in the temptations that plague our very soul. In the very temptations that plague us. Think about it this way. Jesus was tempted in every way that we have been. Feel free this afternoon, if you want to feel really good about yourself, to write down all the ways that you're tempted on a weekly basis. Okay? He's been tempted in every way. Now, suffering comes with temptation. And there are two ways that we deal with suffering and temptation. The main way that we deal with suffering and temptation is we actually give in to temptation. No more suffering. I'm enjoying it now. Now, the consequences that come later might provide a different outcome, but in the moment, I feel much better because I've given into temptation. But the second way that we battle temptation is we lean on the Holy Spirit. We lean on the love of God. We lean on the union with Christ that is offered to us. And many times that's much harder than just giving in. But Jesus always did the second thing. And even though he was tempted in every way, he endured the sufferings of temptation so that he could have a relationship with you. And because of it, he allows us to overcome temptation. He gives us a new avenue that he did not have, namely himself. Hebrews 2.18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And one of those verses that I cling to 
throughout my sin, throughout the course of the week, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Notice the verb there, endure it. You're not relieved from it. Many times we have to endure suffering in the midst of temptation. Jesus never gave in to temptation. That does not mean he never felt it. I think you could argue that it means he felt it much more than we ever have. We get a reprieve from temptation because we give in to sin. But why does God even give us this option? I continue to go back to that. Why does God even give us this option? Why would the God of the universe go through all these steps and inconveniences and pain when at the end of the day, he didn't have to? He did not, we did not deserve any of this. So why does he do it? Can you not see as you look at the text the great love that the God of the universe has for you? He endures all this for you. Not because he's dragged there by God the Father. God the Father's not like, okay, Jesus, come over here. I need you to suffer all these for these people. No, they love you so dearly. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that in unity they say, we're willing to enter into suffering. We're willing to enter wrath so that I can have union with a people that I have called to myself. He desires to be with you. He desires for you to have life and have it abundantly. He desires death to be overcome. That is what makes him merciful and the faithful high priest described in verse 17. The freedom that is accomplished by offering us true humanity through himself. Let's read verses 14 and 15 again. I jumped over it if you notice. I went to the end and then I wanted to come back to the kind of the capstone here. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one that has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Let's go back to the boating analogy. Some of the reason that is is because, let's be real, I kind of want to go fishing. Okay, let's go back to the boating analogy. We are willingly adrift in this life. If life is a river, we are on a boat doing our best to try to ride it out with as few leaks and issues that come upon the river. We hope we don't bump into rapids. We hope we don't drown. We hope that there's occasionally a friend along the way to join us. But if life is a river, most of us are just trying to find convenience, comfort, and ease in the midst of it. And in much of our passivity, we do not realize that the reason the river ran hard is because there is a great waterfall at the end of the river called death. And because we have sinned, we have put ourselves in the river, and we absolutely deserve to fall over the edge. We absolutely deserve that. 
And we're enslaved to the idea of death. We're enslaved to it. Just look at the news and how many products are given to us to make sure that we don't think about death. To the point where many times we amuse ourselves to death. It haunts our thoughts. We don't know when the end will come because there is a great fog on the river. But because our Savior has pioneered the journey and has united us to himself, when we hit the edge of the waterfall, when death is at our doorstep, we need not fall into the abyss. But we float upon a greater river. A greater spiritual river which the Lord has given to us. And we need not fear the waterfall ahead because we will not fall into that abyss, but we are offered life in Christ. We need not be afraid of the end of life if we are united to Jesus. Because he's given us himself. He's overcome the grave. And because of that, we will one day, at the end of this river's journey, be more of the image bearers than God has initially intended and created us to be. We'll be actually more fully human as we cling to Christ. Bow your heads with me.